Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or as it's better known, the GERD, is a major hydroelectric project that is being built on the Blue Nile River near the border with Sudan. The dam promises to bring a much-needed source of electricity to the people of Ethiopia. But the dam sits on what is the main tributary to the Nile River, and Egypt, which is downstream from Ethiopia, has vehemently opposed its construction. Egypt contends that the dam will restrict water flow and undermine its rights to the Nile waters. Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan are now locked in a fight over water, and who gets to benefit from the Nile River. On the line with me to explain the dispute over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is Mekdalawit Masai. She is an independent water science researcher based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which is where I caught up with her. We kick off discussing the history of this dam project and its significance to the economic development of Ethiopia. She then explains some of the key sticking points that are preventing Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan from reaching a diplomatic agreement over the dam project and water rights. The story of the GERD is obviously of profound regional significance for East Africa and Egypt, but it also has important international dimensions. For one, the United States has sought to play a diplomatic role in resolving the crisis, though it has done so rather clumsily for reasons we discuss in this episode. But more broadly, these kinds of disputes between countries that share the same water source could become more and more common in the coming years due to climate change. How this particular dispute is resolved could have big implications for future conflicts over water. Today's episode is supported in part from a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to showcase African voices in peace and security issues. To access those episodes, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com or subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already. And by subscribing to the podcast, you will unlock hundreds of episodes, including those that deal with regional African issues. And for those of you who want a little more from the podcast, please become a premium subscriber. I have dozens upon dozens of bonus episodes that I've released for premium subscribers. And among other rewards, premium subscribers also get access to my daily global news clips service. To become a premium subscriber, just follow the links in the description field of this podcast or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with Mekdalawit Masai. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, 
and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. If we really want to go to the origin stories of GERD, we have to go all the way back to the 60s and the 50s when uh, Emperor Haile Selassie wanted to build uh, the dam on uh, on Lake Anna. And he had the U.S. Um, Bureau of Reclamation make a study uh, on how to utilize the Blue Nile waters. And that was when it was first conceived. So the GERD was one of the, the projects that was identified by the USBR, United Bureau of Reclamation is uh, potential projects to be developed. But as you can imagine, uh, the finance and the funding was low at that point. And because of the international dynamics of uh, no wanting to fund any projects on the, on the Nile, not to go uh, not to go against the interests of Egypt, this project could not be realized. Also, the Turk regime, the military regime, which came after the after Emperor Haile Selassie, also wanted to implement the project, but because of the civil unrest and also the financial constraints, they could not also couldn't do it. Um, after that, uh, another government came, so what the one that's currently here. So in two thousand and ten. There was a study by ENCO, Eastern Nile Technical Regional Office. It's a division of the Nile Basin Initiative. And as part of that, uh, or as, as part of their project, they were studying multi, multi-purpose joint projects, which could be uh, developed by these three countries, Sudan, Egypt, and Ethiopia. And so what was it in, in 2011 that set the sort of broader political, domestic, and international conditions to start the construction of the dam. So as I told you earlier, the the dam was supposed to be a joint multi-purpose project by redeveloped by these three countries, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. But unfortunately, that didn't go through. So the frustration of the tickets and years and years of negotiation with these three countries in the hope of utilizing the Nile together uh, wasn't really working. So in 2011, the, the government of Ethiopia decided to pursue with this project. Um um, it's also worth noting that Ethiopia had a double-digit growth for the past seven, eight years preceding 2010. So it was actually in a better political stability and econo- economic stability compared to the previous years. Um, in relation to international finance, nothing changed. International finance was not available for this project. So what the government did was actually mobilize uh, local funding, system funding, crowdfunding, to fund this project. So essentially what triggered this project was um, frustration from years and years of um, lack of cooperation or discussions or negotiations not going through. Um, I, I don't know if you know about the, the the access to electricity and where basic needs in Ethiopia are, but this is, um, for example, electricity access is less than 41% uh, access to food and um Food security and water security is still not secure in the country. Uh, access to electricity, healthcare, and all these basic benefits that we talk about in the international community or as international goals are not really secure in Ethiopia. So it was quite urgent uh, for the government um, to pursue this massive project, very audacious projects, in order to push the country to the goal that it was aiming and also in line with international community goals, international uh, United Nations goals, let's say. So 
yeah, essentially it was the need uh, to move forward and also the lack of cooperation that prompted the GERD. Once the GERD is fully operational, Mm -hmm. what are the projections for the kinds of electricity that it will generate for the people of Ethiopia? I mean, you said right now there are 41% of Ethiopia doesn't have access to a reliable electricity. It's actually, no, it's actually the access is 41%, so more than Ah. 60% don't have access. That translates to 65 million people living in Mm. darkness. So um, the GERD, when it was originally conceived, was supposed to produce around 5,000 megawatts, and that raised to 6,450 megawatts, and now it's projected to produce around 5,250 megawatts, but that translates to around more than 15,000 gigawatt hours of energy every year. This would be massive in comparison to the amount of electricity we produce now. So on average, every year, the annual production of Ethiopia is around 4,000, slightly above 4,000 megawatts. So you can imagine how much an extra 5,000 or 6,000 megawatts would mean for this country. It would mean... Increased access to electricity for everyone. It would mean the intermittent power outages in the country would be significantly reduced, which would mean industries could produce more, could uh, could uh, essentially function on full capacity. It would mean uh, having surplus of energy to sell to neighboring countries, which would uh, which would actually produce much needed foreign currency in the country in order to um, make sure that there is access to these basic needs, such as uh, such as education. Um, uh, healthcare, uh, access to jobs, and all the things that we agree as uh, uh, as basic needs in the world. So, so it's pretty clear uh, that this dam, once fully constructed, would provide a significant economic boom, boom to Ethiopia. Exactly. Um, so, like the, the interest in Ethiopia completing this project is, is you know, is, is apparent. Um, what are Egypt's primary objections to this dam project? Well, Egypt's primary objection to this dam has been evolving, to say the least. So at the beginning, uh, we can also look at this, look at this question historically, because um, historically Egypt had a hegemonic power or a hegemonic position uh, in terms of the Nile water use. So the 1959 agreement uh, on on the use of the Nile waters allocated essentially the whole of the Nile waters between Egypt and allocated the whole of the Nile waters between Egypt and Sudan without leaving any drop of water for the upstream countries, which were the sources of the water. So this 1959 agreement, the total amount of water that uh, that's measured, the total amount of waters of the Nile measured at Aswan is around 84 billion cubic meters. So this 1959 agreement essentially divided the waters of the Nile uh, as 55.5 billion cubic meters to Egypt, 18.5 billion cubic meters to Sudan, and the rest for evaporation, which leaves essentially zero, literally zero billion cubic meters of water for all of these nine upstream countries. So as you can see here, and also historically, even before 1959, Egypt had the lion's share of the Nile water use. So essentially, what when it all what it all boils down to is Egypt is afraid of losing this hegemonic power on the line, on the Nile water use. There has we we hear these nuances about. Um, 
reduced water security or issues with farmlands being lost in Egypt. But essentially, what all these arguments come down to is that Egypt doesn't want historical share, as they call it, their their 55.5 billion cubic meter share. They do not want their historical share to decrease. This is a no-go for Ethiopia because acknowledging or agreeing to agreeing that Egypt share, uh, I'm using air quotes here, share, because this agreement is not acknowledged by Ethiopia. Um, Acknowledging Egypt's 55.5 billion cubic meter share would essentially mean acknowledging that we, Ethiopia, and all the rest of the riparian countries don't have a share in the Nile waters. So essentially, the fear of Egypt and to a smaller extent Sudan uh, boils down to this. It boils down to not losing their hegemonic power. It boils down to not losing their uh, their share, their historical share, or their current use. Or there are many words uh, on how they describe this uh, issue. But essentially, it's all about not losing their current share or their current use of the Nile water, which is based on a premise which which bites into the share of other countries because, in essence, what the 1959 agreement did was allocate the water that was supposed to be allocated between 11 countries to two countries. So whatever kind of reasoning that that arises from this 1959 agreement uh, is not uh, acceptable to Ethiopia and also the upper riparian countries. So this is what, what it boils down to. So, I mean, given the increased climate variability uh, since 1959 to, you know, today, uh, you know, when Egypt worries that uh, a dam uh, at the Blue Nile, the main tributary to the Nile, uh, might upset and interfere with water flows through Egyptian agricultural heartlands, uh, I mean, don't they have a point? We do have a point, the the premise being, see, this is the problem. Uh, the Nile, as I told, the, the measure of the Nile, as I told you earlier, uh, amounts to 84 billion cubic meters of water. That's not a lot of a lot of water, especially compared to other transboundary rivers worldwide. That's, that's not a lot of water, especially when you think that you have to divide it between 11 countries. The problem now, especially with the international community, is that this this 1959 agreement, the skewed status quo that allows Egypt to have 55.5 billion cubic meters of water, is taken as a premise, is taken as a baseline. We cannot argue or we cannot we cannot start negotiating on whether this is fair or that that's not fair, whether uh, they have a point or not, based off of this premise, you know, because that's 55.5 billion cubic meters share in the first place was not just. So even if the whole of the Nile water was left to them, projections for 2050 in the Nile Basin show that Egypt alone would require 88 billion cubic meters of water for irrigation. This is just Egypt. Irrigation requirement for Sudan is also going to increase. Irrigation requirement for Ethiopia is also going to increase. So this idea that uh, Egypt has a point when it's saying because of climate change, because of population increase, that it's going to need more water. And so their scarcity or their question is justified is a non-starter because the premise that we're starting with, the premise that they are entitled to the 55.5 billion cubic meters of water in the first place is not correct, is not fair, is not just. 
what we have to think about is how can we as a basin as the as a as a as, as a basin as a whole economic unit can go how can we move forward considering climate change considering population growth considering increased water demand because these, these three things especially what i mentioned now population climate change and increased water demand they're not just happening in egypt they're happening also in sudan and ethiopia and all these nine basin countries so to talk to single out egypt or to single out sudan and talk about their water shares which were essentially based on an uh, uh, based on an unjust agreement and disregard the security the water security of these other countries is i think that the main problem the main problem with the whole discussion around the nile these issues are not uh these issues are not unique to egypt or sudan these issues are universal these issues are shared by the basin as a whole we should be talking about how we should move forward as a basin not how the shares of egypt should be kept or how egypt has a has a just cause in asking for more water or I do. I, I do want to ask you uh, what a more equitable um, sort of division of, of mm-hmm. water rights might be. Uh, before you get there, though, could you, you know, Sudan is, is the other key player in this uh, dispute. Uh, you know, do does the position of the government of Sudan, which right now is you know is a transitional government, mm-hmm. um, does it differ in any meaningful way from the position of Egypt as as uh, governments or countries that have a certain share allocated to them from that 1959 agreement? Um, yes, the, the position of Sudan is uh, different from the position of Egypt in the sense that it first acknowledged the benefits that Sudan will get from the GERD or from the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. That's a major deviation between Egypt and Sudan. So, Sudan will get significant benefits, such as reduced sedimentation for their dams and reduced flooding uh, risks and also uh, increased capacity for their dam, for their power plant to to enhance their electricity production. So essentially, they do understand the benefits that that they're going to have from the GERD. So for the most part, they used to be, they were supportive of the GERD and initiatives uh, around it. Uh, you can also see that in the negotiations where they start, they will usually take the middle ground. Uh, but uh, they still have reservations, especially in terms of dam safety, because the dam is built quite close to the border. It's 15 kilometers from the Ethiopian Sudanese border. So uh, reasonably enough, they have concerns about dam safety, which has been raised and uh, resolved. But other than that, uh, what 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 points or what's common between Sudan and Egypt in terms of their opposition to the GERD or resistance to the GERD is when it comes down to water allocation and uh, when it comes down to reducing or dealing with the shares they were entitled to in the 1959 agreement. So uh, issues like uh, how do we fill the dam or long-term operation of the dam or what's the, what are the what what normally are the sticking points in the negotiations these days, for example, uh, droughts, uh, prolonged dry years, and prolonged drought periods. These uh, these concepts uh, essentially relate water allocation and how much water a country is supposed to release to the other. So in these core issues, Sudan and Egypt are in line in terms of, uh, in the sense that they want to keep the status quo of the 1959 agreement intact. Uh, so they want to preserve their shares. But the major difference between Egypt and Sudan being uh, Sudan openly acknowledged the benefits that it, that it would get from the GERD, while we don't see much of that from Egypt. 
but um, the position of Sudan has also been changing with changing government. Um, again, this relates to the issue of the grid or the dam being intrinsically political as a transboundary uh, project. So over the last several months, there has been seemingly a flurry of diplomatic action uh, around the dam uh, in negotiations between Ethiopia, Sudan, and, and Egypt. Um, where does that diplomacy stand at the moment? Um, especially after the negotiations stalled uh, following the Washington debacle. Um, What's the, the Washington debacle? <laughs> okay, so the, the negotiations have been going on for quite a while. Um, so there were tripartite discussions for a very long time, uh, for about six, seven years, I think seven or eight years. And then... Um, they did not really reach anywhere, so Egypt asked the United States to uh, to intervene, and then so these three countries, Egypt, Sudan, and Egypt, uh, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, have been negotiating as the U.S. being an observer, the U.S. and the World Bank being the, uh, uh, as observers. Well, that was the terms of the condition. Uh, so that. This was last January and February, but uh, at least according to Ethiopia, the U.S. overstepped its bounds in terms of uh, uh, in terms of its role as an observer, and uh, the role essentially shifted from being an observer to a, to a mediator and then a lawmaker. So this was a red line for Ethiopia. So the negotiations in Washington had stalled last February 2019, and after that there was a stalemate. The three countries tried tried to push the negotiations further. Uh, and then uh, this whole dealing of Egypt taking the issue international to the Arab League, to the United Nations Security Council happened. And then after that, the AU intervened. So South Africa is the, the chair of the AU this year. So uh, that's why Cyril, Cyril Ramaphosa is, uh, um, is helping with the negotiations. So, but Currently, the negotiations are happening under uh, under un, under the intervention of the AU. So, negotiations are still going on. I think they also started the negotiations last Monday. Uh, another round of negotiations. So, this time around, the three countries have agreed on some of the technical topics. They still have uh, they still have yet to agree on uh, the legal ramifications of the agreement. So. Uh, hopefully this time around they can get together or they can come closer on some of the legal thought, the the the, uh, the legal issues uh, surrounding the technical the technicalities of the filling and the operation of the dam. Yeah. So can you just describe what are some of those legalities that are uh, points of contention right now? My understanding it has a lot to do with how the dam will be filled because it's in the filling of that dam that you would be diverting the most amount of water. Is that a fair description? Uh yeah, I would say so. So, uh, so the legality has to do with how do you, how you, how do you write the technical agreement? But sticking points are mainly in the technical agreement. So there are three main issues here. So the first, so essentially we have agreed on how on how to fill the dam. So there there has been a general agreement that the dam would be filled in four to seven years, and there is this matrix that shows uh, how much water uh, will be filled every year depending on the hydrological conditions. So that part is already agreed upon is a good step forward. But what has not been agreed on is how to mitigate drought, um, dry season, uh, prolonged drought and prolonged dry years. So these would be years where we would have below average uh, flow 
uh, which would be which which which, uh, which would essentially be classified as drought. So, sticking point here, according to Ethiopia, is that there needs to be a shared burden of this drought and fires because it's a, nat- a natural phenomena, and the burden should not be on Ethiopia. While on the other hand, on the Egyptian and Sudanese side, the propos- the proposition is that Ethiopia would be required to release a certain amount more water during drought and dry years to sort of sustain Egyptian and Sudanese dams, uh, per se. So this is one of the, the, the sticking points. While Ethiopia uh, wants a shared uh, responsibility, their Egyptian and Sudanese proposition is that Ethiopia, as the dam uh, owner or uh, as the as the country storing the water, is supposed to supplement Sudan and Egypt in this dry and drought time, which would essentially make GERD hostage to uh, climate conditions and situations in Sudan and Egypt. Uh, so the thresholds for drought, dry years and extended dry years have also been under negotiation, so the numbers are also contentious. This is the first issue, how to deal with dry years, drought and uh, extended dry years. Uh, Second one being the kind of dispute resolution mechanisms. So on the Egyptian and Sudanese side, they want some kind of a binding arbitration, while on the Ethiopian side, Ethiopia wants it to be, uh, let's say, uh, what's like the Like a political agreement or something, as opposed to a binding arbitration agreement. Yeah, it's not binding. It's it's more mediation. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's a, there's a, a phrase for it. Um Okay, so just after our interview concluded, Mechtelewit emailed me that phrase. The phrase she was searching for is binding mediation. And this is opposed to Egypt's preferred position, which is arbitration, the latter of which is more stringent. Okay, back to the interview. Uh, essentially, these two are the main sticking points in the negotiation. So when, when I say the legalities of it, it's how you write, how you interpret these things. Um on paper, I, I suppose. Well, I, I mean, it seems like these are not insurmountable uh, diplomatic challenges. You're really just kind of getting into the weeds of, of technicalities um, in terms of like water flow and dispute resolution mechanisms. Obviously, there are big implications for both of them. But, you know, this doesn't seem like a diplomatic problem that cannot be solved. I agree with you on the fact that this is not uh, a dead end and it's not insurmountable, but it's also important to note the actual gravity of the situation. Um, the issue, the reason why the thresholds for drought and dry years are an issue is because it relates to water allocation, as I tried to mention earlier. So these numbers essentially go back to how much each country is uh, entitled to, and then we don't have that kind of framework in the Nile Basin except the colonial 1959 agreement, which essentially is a non-starter for Ethiopia. That's where the deadlock happens. Um, whether we like it or not, the, the, the discussion always goes back to the water shares uh, that Egypt and Sudan think they're entitled to, which is a non-starter. Um, but diplomatically, you, you can go be a, you can definitely go beyond it, but the technicalities are uh, a bit difficult. So. The way I see, for me, I'm a professional. I'm a I'm a, I'm a I'm a civil engineer and a hydraulic engineer. So the way I, the way forward for me uh, is to actually tackle this um, colonial agreement to this essence of uh, uh, a skewed water share. Um, 
Hypothetically speaking, if there was an equitable and reasonable uh, water use framework in the basin, this wouldn't be an issue. Because after all, the GERD is a hydropower project. It's a non-consumptive project in the sense that it doesn't actually use the water. So after water, after the, after the water produces energy, it essentially flows downstream. So we don't really have a problem on our hand. The problem is that we don't have an allocation plan. We don't know how much each country is entitled to. So we don't really have a framework to start with. That's where the problem comes in. The way forward, the easy way forward is to actually deal with the actual problem. So the dam is not the actual problem here. The dam is, as I mentioned earlier, it's non-consumptive. It doesn't use the water. It's not like an irrigation project which will actually consume the water and reduce the amount of water reaching downstream. No. The problem here is that in in like, we don't have the foundations to start talking about these things because we don't have a reasonable and fair allocation in the net and, and, and the basin as a whole. So that's the core of the problem. What you're explaining is basically it's, you know, Egypt and Sudan have to accept something less than they're getting now. Absolutely. Um, that's, a, that's a non-starter because if... if even if, if even if this discussion doesn't start with the GERD, it's going to like Ethiopia has other planned projects, other planned irrigation projects. Also, these upstream countries, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, they're going to start developing other projects as well. When this happens, the actual amount of water reaching these downstream countries will for sure decrease. So the the the, uh, the wise thing to do would be to proactively go beyond and actually have a fair share, have a fair share for each of uh, the Nile Basin countries, so we don't encounter the kind of problems that we're encountering with GERD now. So it's it's imperative that these two countries, Egypt and Sudan, get actually get this, get used to the fact that things are not the same. These other countries also have a share. These other countries would also want to use more water, and so they're going to have to learn with how. Ha- essentially learn learn to live with how with less water essentially yeah how concerned uh, is is say the government of Ethiopia uh, over you know proceeding with the dam project and with you know reducing uh, water flows to fill the dam um, in the near future with you know without an agreement uh, and therefore you know upsetting agitating Egypt and Sudan and some of Egypt's allies you know the United States for example is a long ally of Ethiopia, but you know, the current administration and the current government of Egypt are, are rather tight. And I've even seen news reports that the U.S. was threatening to withhold development aid to Ethiopia should uh, the dam project uh, proceed without an agreement. I mean, is, is me, there... Sort of, yeah. yeah. Let me clear something up here first. Filling of the dam is not going to decrease the amount of water reaching downstream significantly. So... For comparison's sake, the amount of water that's lost from the Ahaya Swan Dam by evaporation and seepage by evaporation amounts to 13 from 10 to 15. That's on, on average around 13 billion cubic meters annually. We Ethiopia, when it's when it's filling the dam in the in the agreed four to seven years, would not need more than 13 billion cubic meters of uh, cubic meters of water annually to fill the dam. So, for example, for the first filling, we only needed 4.9 billion cubic meters. Second year would need 13.5, and then from the fourth year on, from the third year onwards, it's on average around 10 billion cubic meters of water that's needed to fill the dam. This is not a significant amount of water that we 
that will reduce the, the or that will re- significantly harm these downstream countries because in comparison to the amount of water that's lost because of waste, because of evaporation, because of seepage in these downstream countries, the amount of water that Ethiopia will hold to fill its dam is nothing, essentially. So it's not, let, let's just get rid of this uh, assumption that the filling will cause significant harm to these downstream countries. It won't. So there's that. Uh, for the second question as to how Ethiopia is concerned regarding um Filling the agreement of filling the dam without uh, without the agree without an agreement, we these three countries, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia, have an agreed framework. It's called the Declaration of Principles, that or the DOP. The DOP essentially states that the construction of the dam will go in parallel with the negotiations. There is no framework that uh, that binds Ethiopia to to reach an agreement first before filling its dam. The GERD or the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is a stage by stage, as a stage is how did how do we call it? As uh, a stage like a step dam, by step, a step yeah. by step dam. So as the construction of the dam reaches a certain stage, filling should also uh, continue. So that's why this, the, the, as I explained earlier, that's why the filling of the dam is divided into stages. So it can go together with the construction of the dam. The Declaration of Principles, Article 5, states that the construction of the dam, which is set because the construction happens in stages, so does the filling. So the construction of the dam, which essentially includes the filling of the dam, will happen in parallel with the negotiations around the filling and operation of the dam. We do not need to reach at an agreement to start filling the dam. This has been already been stated by the Ethiopian government very clearly from the beginning, and so that's why even the first filling of the uh, first filling of the dam happened, regardless of um, uh, the complaints from these other countries uh, out there. We are within our rights. We are within the bounds of the Declaration of Principles, the DOP, when we say Ethiopia does not need an agreement to start filling the dam. Because on the DOP clearly, clearly states that the construction, which includes the filling, goes in line with the negotiations. So it's not, Ethiopia per se is not breaching any type of agreement or law when it's pursuing uh, the filling of the dam. So, um, yes, maybe things would be, there has been statements by the U.S. saying uh, the dam should not be filled before an agreement is reached. Also statements by Egypt. But as far as the law and the agreement between the three countries uh, is concerned, um, first, we're not causing significant harm by the filling of the dam. And second, uh, we would be within our rights to start filling, uh, start filling the dam as per the DOP. Uh, lastly, I, I know I've, I've kept you longer than I oh, promised, no, and I know it's getting late. Um, uh, but lastly, what will you be looking towards in the coming weeks and months that will suggest to you how diplomacy between the three countries is is proceeding? Um, well, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, the negotiations now are, are, are taking are taking place under the umbrella of the AU, and they're supposed to uh, somehow report to the AU on the progress of the negotiations this coming Friday. So I would wait to see the results of that, so see how far they've come in terms of the technical, uh, in terms of the technicalities and also the legal concept. So the idea of, of these negotiations would be to start... Uh, each country has set forth a proposal of its own. So the the the, the essentially the objective of this, uh, this this round of negotiations will be to converge to one common uh, agreement. So we'll just wait and see what happens um, in the report for the AU. 
well, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to McDelawit. That was very helpful. And again, big thank you to the Carnegie Corporation of New York for supporting this series, showcasing African voices in peace and security issues. And as a disclaimer, the opinions and views expressed in this episode belong solely to those of us who expressed them. And as I said at the outset of the episode, please do subscribe to the full feed of the podcast to access hundreds of episodes. And if you want even more from the podcast, do consider becoming a premium subscriber. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.